You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas This Week podcast. You're listening to episode 180. For some reason, Mark, that number sounds really high. It does sound really high. We're getting close to 200, which we have to do a live event, which we miss it with 100. So anybody out there wants to partner with us for the 200th episode of Oil & Gas this week, reach out to me. We could do something really cool. Now, before we get into the reviews and everything else, Jake, I don't want to talk too much about this because I think one of the problems with the mass shootings we have is that people want social exposure. So I'm not mentioning people or names or dates or anything, but audience, can we have just a moment of silence for the victims of the mass shooting and their families that's happened just recently? All right, we're back, and we're back with reviews. So number one way to support the show, to support all the shows, is leave us a review. It helps your peers find the good podcasts versus the ones that aren't so good, and we like to consider ourselves hopefully one of the good ones. So this is Oil & Gas Industry Positivity from the, the Marine Line from Australia. Oh, pretty cool. Amazing podcast. Best news on oil and gas industry from around the world. The new host did not know what GDP was, however, still a remarkable show. And I think what he was actually, he or she was actually talking about is when Paige stepped in when we were in Wyoming and we talked about GDP and she didn't know what it was. So the Marine line from Australia, that was just a host that normally isn't on the show. She knows her stuff. She just didn't know what GDP was, but we appreciate you leaving a review. And now it's time to jump in the news stories. What's going on with that, Jake? So there's a lot going on in just our industry currently. You and I were talking about a little bit before we hopped on the mic, and this has been just constant theme over the last six months. You know, what's the, what's the number one question that we get from from people, especially young people? It's, it's either how to get in the industry or what does the future bring it for the industry? Exactly. And so I feel like a lot of the articles that we put together today are going to kind of really kind of tell a story as to where we're at in some of the realities of the industry. I mean, you and I just gave a talk at, in New Mexico and Albuquerque at IPA New Mexico about the future of oil and gas and why we're so excited. But I think as things change, as industries change and as times change, you know, certain things go away, certain jobs, certain roles go away. You know, we have technological improvements. Our business is cyclical. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot of things, you know, kind of change, especially over the last six months. So we really want to kind of focus today's episode really on kind of the human component of our industry for the most part. We have some other articles as well that we'll go through. Well, let's start off with this one. This first one's talking about oil has a millennium problem. And so it talks about a couple individuals over in the UK that are just they're the prime candidates to come into the oil and gas industry, but over there, especially in that part of the world, and we see it here in the US too, the young people aren't necessarily as interested in the oil and gas industry as generations before. And so I feel like that is in part due to misinformation. And I think obviously, if you look at kind of where they're at and everything that's happening in the UK, there's huge, huge movements to to move towards all renewables, which is, you know, good on them. But the the fact is that most of those are just not as efficient as anything from fossil fuels. Be careful, Jake. You can start getting the hate mail I get. It's a fact. <laughs> so if anybody wants, to, I'll be glad to send anybody some articles about it. I'm not dogging on it. I think that I think that definitely can be some of the, some of the the energy of the future. But the reality is, currently we're just not as efficient as we are with fossil fuels for a lot of different use cases. But we've seen this even with or I've seen this personally with a couple of buddies who are going into MBA programs here in the US here at, I believe it was at UT Austin. It was one of my buddies, Zach. And we, we were asking, you know, Hey, how many people within your class? I think it was a class of like 40 or 50 are actually in energy. And he was like, I think it was like less than 10. 
maybe even less than five. Whereas that program would have been just chocked full of oil and gas people, you know, about 20 years ago. Yep. So Mark, kind of speak a little bit to, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of things change and we'll, we'll kind of talk about some of the layoffs and stuff that we're seeing in the industry, but it's that, okay, so we have a ton of layoffs. Let me go ahead and just kind of dive a little bit into the next article and then we'll kind of loop this back around. So Whiting Petroleum is slashing off a third of their workforce, right? And we're going to see a lot more layoffs. NOV just did the same thing. I don't know if, I don't think it was one third of the workforce, but it's quite a bit. We're going to see more companies doing this. We're going to see more consolidations. There's going to be a lot of redundancies and elimination of jobs, you know? And so I see almost like two completely different sides of the spectrum. We have one side where it's saying, hey, we have talent shortages and we, we can't get young people to come into the industry. And on the other side, it's, we've got too many people doing too many, you know, of the same thing and we need to lower our GNA in order to kind of practice some sort of capital discipline. So especially in upstream, where do we look? We just, we, we cut our cost and most of our costs are going to be in our people. What is your take on this? I feel like it's, it's two completely different sides of the spectrum. I could literally spend a day <laughs> just talking about this. So a couple of things to back up, but the, a millennial problem, it's not just a millennial problem. It's, it's all new talent. So this, the article you put in here has a really good, interesting statistic. In the UK, the higher education, so basically think of universities and college, for people that had oil and gas related majors have dropped 61% in the last four years. What's happening as an industry is a couple things. So first thing is the way we handle environmental concerns has been quite honestly very ineffective as an industry. The way that we correct misinformation has been almost non-existent. There are a lot of people in the world, back to your point earlier, Jake, that think that we're in the next decade to get rid of all fossil fuels, which by the way, I hate that name fossil fuels. It's not fossil fuels. It's natural fuels or organic fuels. So there's no, no more organic fuel source than crude oil, but it's not the reality. Now our energy mix will change and will continue to change. Renewables have their place on our list of future podcasts is oil and gas clean energy. And it's there for a reason. But hydrocarbons will never go away. Their use for fuels are diminishing here and in Europe, but they're also going up in the rest of the developing world because it's the best way to provide power, cheap, reliable, abundant power. So the use for hydrocarbons will continue to grow globally. It's what we need for the future. You cannot have modern society without hydrocarbons. And yet, as an industry, we've done a horrible job of explaining that in a, in a factual way, not emotions, not politics, but just facts. So now a lot of the world, especially the world's younger people in universities, think that we're an archaic industry. We're not. They also think that we're harming the planet, which we're not. And they also think that we're dirty non-high-tech industry, which we're not, but we need to own that as industry. We're not doing a good job of explaining what's going on. And so we're letting Silicon Valley get all the best talent. Well, we need the same talent that Silicon Valley has. And, and we're just not seeing that same light. We should be, but we're not. So there's that part. As an industry, we don't do a good job of attracting all young people, not just millennials, but the generation behind them, Generation Zs. The other thing you're talking about, the layoffs, you have to understand people that if you decide to work in a part of the industry that is a commodity, which upstream is a commodity, there's going to be cycles. There's going to be boom cycles and bust cycles. It's like that with all commodities. Now, with this lack of talent coming in oil and gas, especially engineering, especially think very niche engineering, like uh, petroleum engineering. And the fact that we're going through a right-sizing moment right now here in the U.S. with a lot of the land 
operations needing to cut costs. That tells me that probably in about six years, five, six years, petroleum engineers are going to make more money than anybody because it'd be a huge shortage of all the old petroleum engineers will be gone in the next five years. There's not enough new ones coming in. You can't run an oil and gas upstream operation without a petroleum engineer. So I actually think in some ways there's going to be a handful of students that stuck to it, that got their degree in petroleum engineering, and they're going to come out of school and, and they're not going to know what to do with themselves. They're going to have 50 offers in their back pocket. But that's not a long-term solution. As an industry, we need to start using things like technology. These up and downs, so you talk about Whitney Petroleum slashing its workforce. You know, if you haven't gathered enough data on commodity prices and global demand, and a little bit of machine learning can figure out that you don't need to staff up this much this year and you need to wait two years, which would then level out somewhat the ups and downs of the the trend of either hiring like crazy and paying people too much money. And then the moment that the price of crude isn't what you need it to be, you start laying off big parts of your workforce. I think that's going to change. It used to be like that in automotive in the, in the 40s and 50s. And the automotive industry as a whole got together and figured out how to kind of level that out so they weren't paying top dollar for talent. And at the same time, they could still run their business. So I'm hoping that we kind of fix this. But also remember, people, if you're listening, that upstream is only one part of our industry. It's not the entire industry. So right now, petrochemicals are on fire. They can't hire people quick enough. They can't build enough petrochemical plants around the world. And that's going to be a hundred year trend. So step back, look at the bigger picture. But I agree with you, Jake, we, we have a problem with in, in the industry with recruiting and retaining talent. And, and unless we figure that out and we have to figure it out as an industry, it's going to continue to plague us. So talking a little bit more about the Whiting Petroleum eliminated jobs, obviously, so they eliminated 254 jobs, 94 of those positions were executive and corporate positions. You know, so that's 33% of its total workforce. But so let me, so let me preface this by saying anybody who's laid off from, from Whiting Petroleum, if there's any way that we can help, feel free to reach out. I, I'd love to kind of introduce you to anybody I can know to get you in a new position. Second part, it's needed. It is. Like we said, it's needed not just for Whiting Petroleum, but it's needed across a lot of different companies. I've seen it firsthand. There's just a lot of redundancies. It's bloated staffs. There's too much GNA. GNA is eating up every bit of returns. And as a result, especially public companies, you got to understand these companies are under so much pressure right now to, to just provide some kind of returns to the investors. You know, we've this whole fracking boom financially has been a disaster. And I think the industry is seeing that. And I think a lot of people are kind of struggling to figure out exactly what is next. So in the meantime, until they really figure that out, the only way they really know how to cut costs in upstream is going to be to, to slash the workforce. So prepare for it. We're going to see a lot more of it. We're going to see a lot more consolidations like we talked about. We just saw the Callan and Carrizo consolidation. There's going to be a lot of layoffs there too. Yeah. And Jake, it just reminded me of something. I can't remember which prediction. It wasn't 2019. It might have been 2017 that I said that we're in this hydrocarbon abundant world and hydrocarbons are around forever and there's no shortage of them, which is going to drive low commodity prices forever unless a war breaks out. And this is actually a direct result of that. You know, the fracking, the ability to extract hydrocarbons using the technique fracking right now is predominantly in the U.S. And so you're seeing companies like Whitney having to lay off people because they, they literally need to adjust their cost. What happens when fracking spreads to the rest of the world, when they're fracking in China and Argentina and South America and the U.K.? Well, maybe not the U.K., but they have the resources. They have the shell resources there. So long-term-wise, people, we need to get a handle on this because the amount of hydrocarbons that are able to enter the market is unlimited. It wasn't like it was in the 70s during the Arab oil embargo when the price of oil was going up and everybody thought we had peaked oil. And so the upstream part of our industry actually was in a very good place. They couldn't supply enough. So, so they had a lot of capital. They had a lot of jobs they needed to fill. They were in a good place because there was an oversupply of demand. 
we're not going to have an oversupply of demand ever again unless a war breaks out again. So we have to learn how to work in this long-term hydrocarbon abundant market. And we just haven't figured it out yet. I know you could talk some more about capital efficiency. That's one of the key picks. So I'm going to let you keep on going. So yeah, let's just kind of keep painting this picture of, of kind of what's going on with the industry today. Clay Williams, chairman and president and, and CEO of NOV has recently said that they are facing challenging cross currents as it navigates a generational oil field downturn. So they just released their quarterly earnings report along with Schlumberger and Halliburton. And it was a little bit revealing talking about layoffs. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, NOV is offering voluntary early retirements and severance payments, and they're trying to cut annual expenses by $160 million. And that's going to be just purely just GNA. And Schlumberger and Halliburton, as far as I know, have not announced any layoffs either, but the writing is kind of on the walls. We're seeing a shift from just being so laser focused on the onshore shale plays in North America to more of a diversified global market where we're seeing a lot of growth offshore, especially for some of these bigger companies. So, I mean, you get you to look at companies, these big service companies, they see everything. You know, and they understand the trends and they have to understand the trends if they want to survive. They're playing a low margin game. And so obviously, you know, we're seeing, I think it's exciting that we're, I think that offshore is becoming more and more efficient and it's becoming more and more economical. Maybe, well, I won't say that. (laughs) I think it's a good thing. Yeah. I can't say enough about that. Yeah. So the offshore environment tends to be conventional reservoirs and your cost limiter is usually the depth of the water that you have to, before you hit rock. So conventional reservoirs are actually very productive because it's basically just a, a, think of a large resource, almost think of it as a lake, although come on geologists, I know it's not a lake, but think of it as a large resource of oil where you can drill into it and just pump hydrocarbons out the ground as opposed to the fracking where you're drilling horizontal and you have to stay in a pay pay area and then you have to exert physics. So you have to crack the rock and make sure the cracks stay open so the hydrocarbons can flow. So it's it's a totally different world. Offshore is all about hitting your start dates and deliverables because all the math is done up front and you make money. And they tend to be very large, very complex, very long-term projects. And on land, fracking is more like the factorization of drilling. It's like same way that Toyota builds Camrys. Can you drill a well and complete a well the same way in that factory type of environment? So it's really interesting to see some of the offshore come back. What's really interesting here, if you read between the lines, they talk about how they've had had a lot of business growth outside of the U.S. And what's cool about that is that tells me that other parts of the world are going to start tapping into this hydrocarbon bonanza. You're seeing countries like Brazil figure out that renewables aren't their cup of tea. So they've just actually today divested, Petrobras divested all their renewables, and they decided to open up the details and the local content to other companies in other countries. So now you can go to Petrobras and form a joint venture and you actually get revenue that you can control, not what Petrobras gives you. So they had to change it. Same thing going on in Mexico, right? So as a global industry, especially the upstream side of the industry, it's really interesting to see the service companies have growth outside the U.S. because most of their growth for the last five years has been in the U.S. And I like the the fact that they're, that's basically spreading risk, which hopefully, like we talked about earlier, will decrease the peaks and valleys of these massive booms and bus cycles. So it's going to be really interesting to watch what happens because I still don't see offshore coming back hard. But the thing about offshore that makes it so hard to predict is whatever you're doing today is really a plan for you to go in production 10 years from now. So you have to try to, it's almost like being a farmer, but instead of having to figure out which crop is going to work next year, you have to figure out which crop is going to work a decade from now. Yeah. That's a hard thing to do. North American land, it's remaining to be a challenging environment. Operators are focusing more on cash flow, which is resulting in them kind of capping activity. 
They're driving efficiency improvements. And so it's reducing the number of active rigs and frack fleets. And so we have another article with another example, and this is just one of like 10 that I've seen in the last week. Concho stock falls 22% as they uh, do their last earnings call. They just obviously have, have you know fallen short along with every single other unconventional player. You know, they're Here's a great quote. Let me just sum it up with this quote. This is from an analyst named Paul Sankey. He writes, or he says, how companies still, after all these years, we have wailed and gnashed our teeth, managed to overpromise and underdeliver, remains an infuriating mystery. Do we really need to repeat that? That a company much least in the most hated sector of the market with a premium valuation must never ever overpromise and underdeliver. And I know that's harsh. But that is the reality. That's the reality that we're living in, especially with with public oil companies. And I've said this time and time again, that going public for an oil company is probably one of the worst ideas you could ever do because it does not enforce good business decisions. It enforces decisions to drive shareholder value. Which is what a public company is. That's their bread and butter. Yeah. So I, I do want to go back a little bit. So a lot of these independent operators are, are I'm not going to say they're struggling, but they're having to course adjust right now. But some of them aren't, Jake. XTO is doing exceptionally well. Now, you could say XTO is doing exceptionally well because their parent company is kind of a big thing in oil and gas. Yeah, I don't really see, I don't really see them as an independent. <laughs> and, and I guess they're not anymore. But the, the rumor is there's nobody in XTO from Exxon except one person. And that one Exxon person's job is to keep the rest of Exxon out of XTO. But they did move their headquarters, which then tells me maybe that's not so true anymore. Actually, if there's anybody listening from XTO, reach out to us. We, we won't mention your name. I just like to get the inside scoop on, does it still feel and operate like an independent or are you starting to be brought into the mothership? I, I'm curious myself. Yeah. So overall, I don't want this to be taken negatively. I'm excited about all this. I think a, I think operators being more disciplined with capital, I think focusing more on cash flow is a good thing, not just short term, but also long term, you know, scaling back on the number of rigs. It's a good thing. We have a significant amount of production in the US. If we can cap that just a little bit, bring it down just a little bit, we are the swing producer, regardless of what anybody thinks. We can drive up the WTI ourselves. You know, I think it's a, a little bit of a novel concept, but I think this is a good thing. I think everybody does practice a little bit of capital discipline. I think the oil prices will go up and that's good for all of us. Yeah. And the other thing is one of the things that when I first got in this industry 20 some odd years ago that I, I used to just dumbfound me is I got to see behind the curtains of a lot of small companies and a lot of really big companies. And you look at the waste and the inefficiencies that I saw back then. And I would go, how are y'all making any money? And the reason they were making money is because their margins were so robust that they didn't care if they wasted 100 grand of this or 300 grand of this or whatever. That's not how you run a business long term. That may be how it is when everything's new, right? So when you're the first multi-level marketer selling Nomni juice, you can do all kinds of stuff. But when you got 600 competitors in your neighborhood, you got to be more efficient. We're doing that right now with Oil and Gas Global Network. You know, for, for the last two years, we've been running wide open and we have to start looking at driving efficiencies as we morph from a startup into a real business. And I think the same thing needs to happen in upstream, especially here in the US where the companies need to actually run a business, need to have a balance sheet, need to make smart decisions, need to make good investments. And I know you and I talk about technology all the time, but I still think that technology is going to come in and fix a lot of that. It's going to spot inefficiencies that humans couldn't spot. It's going to look at ways to drive capital efficiency. We haven't 
thought of. It's going to look at ways to operate and even produce without as many people involved. So it's it gets to be a repeatable, concise process. And I've seen parts and pieces of this. And I just think we're in this transition phase and we're just doing a bit of a course correction. So like Jake said, we're not being negative at all. This is just what's going on right now in our backyard. Yeah. It's not our it's not our job to sit here and hype up the industry or talk bad about the industry, but just to kind of report what's going on, right? So we try to. We try to be as unbiased as possible. Obviously, we're very passionate. So, <laughs> all right, changing the pace a little bit. I think this next article is a little bit funny. Tankers are shipping Venezuelan crude to Cuba and have been for the past three years. Or there's certain tankers in this article that have been. And they're being tracked by the U.S. government because they've been sanctioned. They're not supposed to be doing this. And so these clever little guys decided to rename their tankers, literally just paint them with a new name and change the name on the paperwork and continue operating back and forth. And I find this hilarious. Jake, it's better than that. So you remember being in the Marine Corps and the Marine, the Marine Air Force had transponders so you could designate that you were friendly, but also which plane you were, who was the pilot, you know, where they were attached, all that sort of stuff. So tankers have the same thing. They have transponders. So these guys are hacking into their transponders and setting up different names and countries of origin so they can fly under the radar of the US government. And you're right, they're repainting names. It's funny. At the same time, you watch. If this trend continues, somebody's going to make a mistake and their transponders can say they're a bad guy instead of a good guy and they're going to get blown out of the water. This is crazy. But once again, this is about making money. So there's sanctions in place. So we, we can't move. You're not supposed to be able to move Venezuelan oil to, to Cuba. Now, Venezuela and Cuba are allies, but we said that's a no-no. So what they're doing, because there's such a demand for that, is they're actually going through the high-risk scenario and the cost of repainting and reformatting your transponders so that the U.S., it looks like a different ship. And this is a game that they're just going to lose. There, there is no way they're going to keep this up. We've figured this out already, so now it's going to be an easy thing. And then with things like satellites, they literally, in artificial intelligence, regardless of what you name it or what the transponder says, we know where you came from. We know what your ship looks like. We know exactly who's on there. So, But but this is you know just another, another reason that companies and countries need to pay more attention to what's going on, you know, even in their own borders or even around sanctions and, and tariffs and that sort of stuff, because this is a bad thing. I would hate something really bad to happen to a tanker crew just because somebody back in corporate <laughs> wanted to make an extra $100,000. Oh, it's funny. All right. Last article. I didn't get a chance to go through this one because you added it, but it's something about Saudi Arabia opening up a huge petrochemical facility, correct? Yeah, if you've listened to us for any length of time, you've heard me talk over and over and over and over and over again about petrochemicals. It's what makes modern life possible. I don't care where you are in the world. If you're listening to us right now on a podcast, about 80% of everything it takes you to listen to podcasts is made from hydrocarbons. Your smartphone, your earbuds that are in your ear, the power that supplied it, the glue that holds a smartphone together – all of that sort of stuff, right? Even if you're listening to a desktop, the keyboard, the processor, all that comes from hydrocarbons. So this is an article about how the future of oil is not fuel, but chemicals, which I've been saying forever. And, and it's not the future. We're there already. The U.S. actually makes more money exporting petrochemicals than it does exporting refined fuels. That trend's going to continue. We're very lucky here in the U.S. is we have abundant raw feedstock. The other thing we're very, I'm almost scared to say this because I know there's some politicians that listen to this show, but the other thing that's helped us a lot with petrochemicals is the politicians on either side haven't taken notice of this, of the boom. So there's no extra layers of taxes. There's no uh, political correctness trying to make sure that we do stuff that's silly. And so we've kind of, the, our politicians have ignored, ignored this petrochemical boom. And so this is a whole article showing how Saudi Arabia sees the same thing. They also have 
a very abundant cheap feedstock. And so they're stepping into the ethylene crackers and the all the, the naphtha and, and all those different petrochemical building blocks that are actually very cheap to make, but is what you put together to make everything from your lipstick to your car tires, to your nylon shirts, to, to you know, your smartphone. So it's very interesting to watch the world chase us down. Two years ago, ExxonMobil's International Petrochemical Division grew 100% in revenue year over year. When you're as big as ExxonMobil and a part of your business grows 100%, that is insane, right? And Exxon has petrochemical plants all over the world. They're actually probably one of the best petrochemical manufacturers out there because they tend to locate the raw feedstock before anybody else does. They tend to locate the future demand. So a perfect example of this is China or Asia Pacific. You know, ExxonMobil 20 years ago built a huge petrochemical plant in Singapore, knowing that in the future, which is today, there'd be a big demand for petrochemicals in Asia Pacific. So this is just an article showing how regardless of what oil, what hydrocarbons are used for for fuels now and in the future that the petrochemicals are continuing to grow. And it's just another market force. You know, if you're an upstream operator and somebody's willing to give you an extra 10 cents a barrel to turn your hydrocarbons into Tupperware instead of diesel for the truck, you don't care. You're making extra 10 cents a barrel. That's good stuff. All right, guys, that wraps up the stories for this week. We will catch you guys on the next episode. So let's move into, we're still doing the giveaway. Yeah. You want to do it? You never do it. Ah, yeah, why not? So we are handing out unique OGGN t-shirts with unique serial numbers. Every once in a while, we're going to do a giveaway or something. We'll announce that serial number and you will be announced as the winner on the air. And we will also reach out to you. So if you want to enter win, there's going to be a link in the show notes for one of these shirts. And they're cool shirts. They're pretty cool. We spend a lot of money on them. They're custom cut for men and women. They're not cheap. They got an antique pump jack on the front, our logo on one sleeve, IBM's logo on the other sleeve, which speaking of IBM, big shout out to your guys. Y'all are rocking and rolling. Y'all are doing a lot of artificial intelligence work in oil and gas, real artificial intelligence work in oil and gas. We love the fact that you support the show. So, you know, anybody out there that's looking to understand about well placement or production or completions from a scientific point of view, go hit IBM. Tell Jake and Mark sent you. Speaking of Jake and Mark sending you, what's the week weekly rig count doing today, Jake? We are at 979. Okay. <laughs> not bad, not good. It's what it is. Speaking of good stuff, street team. You'll hear Julie talk about the street team. We still haven't got our hands wrapped around what we're going to do with the street team. So if you're a street team member, I know we haven't reached out to you. I know Tim's been one at a time reaching out to you and doing interviews. Just be patient with us. We had a much bigger turnout for the street team than we thought we would. And so now we're trying to figure out how to work that into our business. But we love you. We're going to use you. You're going to have fun, I promise. And speaking of that, Jake, we talked earlier about uh, we had a contest on LinkedIn for the new host of Oil and Gas Offshore Podcast. We got an amazing turnout. The one mistake we made because we had never done it before was we had a lot of people say, hey, I want to enter the contest, but I don't want my employer to know I'm entering unless I win. Then I'll cross that bridge when I get there. So if you search for Oil and Gas RGG and host search the hashtag on LinkedIn, you'll see I don't know, 15 or 20 people I entered. The truth is we had about 70 people. So we let people direct message me with their videos so their employers wouldn't know. So the winner has been chosen. We know who it is. We're not ready to announce it yet. We'll probably announce it on the next show. But for everybody that contributed that sent a video, thank you. This was freaking awesome. And we had so much fun doing it. We're going to do it in the future. So if you didn't win, stay tuned. we got a bunch of new podcasts coming and we're going to have contests for that. So if you didn't win the offshore one, you have a good chance to win the next one. And then speaking of, Jake talked earlier about how we went and spoke in New Mexico. If you like Jake and I to come deliver a keynote or do a live podcast or like we did in New Mexico, we did both and we had a great time. Just reach out to me or Jake and we'd be happy to share the details. First Friday Q&A, you know the drill. Give us questions. Your job is not to stump Jake and I. Your job is to ask us questions so we can help educate our audience. And 
if you hear us make a mistake, let us know so we can correct it. We try to make sure we, we always tell the truth. Even when we make a mistake, we want to hear from you, our audience, to know when we made something that wasn't true so we can correct it for everybody else. Then while you're online submitting the question for the first Friday Q&A, go to our website. Give us your email address. We promise not to spam you. It's our way to let you know what's going on. And we talked about LinkedIn. Go join the LinkedIn group, OGGN. Easy to find. We're over, I think we're over 3,000 members now. It's, it's growing like crazy. And we got a bunch of new shows coming out, so stay tuned. Oh, that was a lot. Uh, Jake, you ready to get out of here? Let's do it. All right, folks, remember, do great work pay it forward and we will see you next time and here's julie with events on deck okay before heading into the events on deck for july i have a few ogg and announcements we moved our happy hours to quarterly and so the houston and midland happy hour will be in sometime august or september be on the lookout for the date to be announced and we are launching our denver happy hour on august 29th from 4 to 6 p.m all the details are below And now let's move on to the events on deck. We have the Argentina Oil, Gas, and Energy Summit 2019. That's July 10th and 11th in Buenos Aires. The link is below. Then we have a happy hour coming up on July 23rd. It's the Intentional Networking Oil and Gas Happy Hour at the Houston Zoo. This is hosted by Equilibria, NOV, OGGN, and Flutura. And a portion of the ticket sales will be going to Redeem Ministries, a local charity to help human trafficking victims. You can sign up below. Next up, Mark, Jake, and Paige will be speaking at the 2019 IPANM annual meeting, July 24th and 26th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this year's theme is addressing operators' needs in 2019. Sign up below. The desk, Derek. Desk and Derek Fort Worth's second annual Shoot for the Future Clay Shoot is July 26th in Decatur, Texas. Sign up below. And last but not least, Summer Nape is coming up August 21st through 22nd in Houston, Texas. It's where the deals happen. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.